Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads, the big book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspects of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. Today's episode is going to be all about the chapter, We Agnostics. Uh, This is probably, as an atheist, the most difficult chapter in the book. I won't lie, the first time I read this in in sobriety, I, I just really dug deep into kind of the youthful resentment I had for organized religion and for people who believed in God and for God itself or the idea of it. And more just the idea that people really felt that you could do no good without being compelled with the fear of going to hell or being compelled to win the favor of some deity or some being or just the idea that you couldn't be better or be good without being compelled. Now, it's funny because in my youth, I wasn't a very good person. So it's not like I had anything really to back that up with, but I really rebelled against that idea. And, you know, now that we're kind of here, there's a few things I think we should touch on before we even get into any of the reading. The first thing, and I wasn't sure when I was really going to touch on this, but I think this seems the most appropriate time. I'm going to do my best not to get too rambly, as I tend to, uh, and try to keep a coherent framework for my thoughts here. The So the first time I read this chapter, I had a hard time with it as kind of a youth really rebelling against that idea of God. I just said that. The second time I read it, I was at a point in my life where I was a a bit more open-minded about these possibilities, that there could be some sort of spiritual thing at play, that, you know, this could all be destined, etc. There's a higher, whatever this whole concept of higher power was. I was, I was, well, I was in prison. There was a time where, while I didn't necessarily find God, I was searching for answers. Answers as to why I would be the way I am, why I would be the one to survive, you know, certain calamities, why on earth, out of everybody that's had good shit happen to him, had bad shit happen to him, why me? You know, just essentially that. Like, why am I here? What the hell's the reason for this? Why are any of us here? Just existential stuff, as one tends to do while spending a significant amount of time locked away in prison for a horrible crime they committed and don't remember because they were under the influence of copious amounts of alcohol. So when I came across this chapter, again, it it got me thinking a little differently about it. Now, it didn't have the effect that I think the book intended as far as like people in my position that weren't really sure anymore what they believed. Maybe they had started out as an atheist or were more agnostic and were kind of being compelled along to the idea that there was a higher power and that compulsion could just be not wanting to suffer anymore, could be wanting to please people, whatever the reason was that other people might be in that position. It didn't have that effect on me. It it pushed me further into atheism, but it pushed me into the kind of atheist I I would say that I am now. Whatever that really means, I'm not militant in my non-belief. I don't have a lot of hate in me for people that do believe. I don't feel sorry for them. I don't really have a feeling towards them. Like, that's not true. I think what I should do is, so I am going to ramble a little. Ha, I lied. Um, I'm going to tell a story. And this story is going to be actually a time in my youth that I think about a lot now. 
and at least not necessarily think about like I don't think about it every day but I do think about it when it comes into terms with how I view others who are religious and how I view other texts that might be religious or come from a religious place and how I'm able to look at this book and find answers I need out of it even though it comes from a religious home so when I was when I was 18 just before I went into prison I had this urge while I was drunk to steal a bunch of money from a place I worked at. And it was more like out of protest, which doesn't absolve the fact that I stole a bunch of money from my place of, of employment. Um, but it did. They did. It was like, screw you guys. You're not treating me right or whatever. I don't even know if they were or not. I just, you know, I was drunk. I was like, fuck it. I'm going to take all their money because I'm an asshole. And so I did. And I um, kind of partied with a few people. And then I found this connection with somebody that used to be here and had went back home to Texas. And so my, my plan was I was going to get into, I was going to get on a Greyhound now because I'm, I'm running from the law because not only I'm an asshole, but I'm an idiot. I'm going to go to Texas. And I'm going to, I'm going to meet up with this girl that we knew and she was going to let me stay there. And then I guess I was going to start my life in Texas. I honestly, I don't even know what my real thinking was. So I got on this Greyhound bus. I got to, we stopped, I stopped at Phoenix and I didn't really have a particular reason to stop there outside of just, that was my first destination. So I think now that I'm really remembering this, I didn't have a final destination. I just chose Phoenix I don't know why I couldn't, I can't get back into that head space anymore, but so I chose Phoenix, right? And I, I was there for two days and then I realized that Phoenix wasn't really a good place to be homeless. And that's kind of what I was. And I had the experience of being homeless in Portland at that time in the nineties, which as a kid was a great time to be homeless. That's going to sound weird to people who haven't been homeless, but when you're kind of a scumbaggy kid, being homeless in Portland in the nineties was actually just more of like a, like a, it was like camp. It wasn't that bad. There was plenty of places for you to stay. There's free free food and all kinds of other free stuff. There's you could hang out wherever you wanted to. You could do whatever you wanted. It really wasn't that bad. So I get to Phoenix and I'm I'm not a real fan of how you know homelessness is there, which is like just really just homeless. Like it's not fun. And I was kind of confused by that. It got really weird. At one point, at one point, I got lost. But so I got connected with my friend who told me about the girl that went back to Texas and I called her and she's like, yeah, you can come hang out and stay there. And as long as you get a job, my mom's fine with it. So I got onto a Greyhound and I went to Texas. When I got there, suddenly she wasn't answering her phone. And this was back in the day when people didn't have cell phones. And if you weren't at a landline, you weren't getting contacted. So I called and called. Finally, the mom's like, I don't really know what she told you, but uh, she's ran away even if she hadn't, it wouldn't have been okay for you to stay here. And she was she was not being mean about that. It was more like she, this girl didn't tell anybody anything and then kind of ghosted everybody. So I was just shit out of luck. On top of that, my bag had gotten lost. I'd lost my, my travel bag, my backpack. So I was there with just literally whatever I had in my hands, which wasn't much. And all my money was in that bag. Well, all the money I had taken was in that bag. So it's not like I had any of that to fall back on. So... I'm in Texas. I don't know where to begin. So I go to the Salvation Army, realize that I am not cut out for that kind of homeless that's there either. It's it's uh, near Christmas time. The weather's super weird down there. It got down to freezing at one point, but only at night. During the day, it was like 65, 70. It wasn't that cold. I was wearing shorts. It wasn't that big of a deal. Anyway, so I'm staying at Salvation Army and I'm, I've, I've talked to some of the people that work there and it's like six months out before they have a bed available so that I could get an address and actually get a job. So I'm basically looking at being just straight up 
homeless for six months at the very minimum and, you know, living at the shelter and just sort of like whatever that may come. As an 18-year-old, uh, that didn't sound like a whole lot of fun. It really wouldn't sound like fun at any age, to be quite honest. But I just remember feeling pretty fucking hopeless. And I hadn't had anything to drink, though. This this whole time that I've been on the quote-unquote run, I didn't start drinking. It's a very weird, like, clear-headed time in my life where previously and all other instances I would have gotten completely hammered. But I think I was just scared enough of being in a completely unknown place and being completely alone that I didn't feel like I could drink safely. I don't know what the reason was, but it just didn't cross my mind. Part of it also was if I was under the influence that they wouldn't let me into the shelter. So maybe that also had something to do with it. Not that I've ever really had consideration for responsibilities in other instances of my drinking. Uh, but regardless, I wasn't drinking. And so I'm outside. I don't know, maybe it's been about a week. And I finally, this is when I finally found out that, you know, I'm not getting this place to stay. Um, I'm outside, I'm walking around and this dude comes up and he's just chatting me up a little bit. He's asking me some questions and then he starts talking about like, you know, alcohol use and stuff like that. And the questions are getting weird. They're not getting so weird that I'm like out of there. They're just getting weird in that like, I'm now curious as to who this is and why they're asking so many questions. We go back and forth a little bit and he's like, hey, so my name is blah, blah, blah. I really wish I could remember this guy's name. He's actually really cool. And I work for this ministry. It's a church kind of situation. He's like, I think we could help you out. And I'm like, well, how, how exactly could you help me? He's like, well, we can set you up with a place. It's shared living. You'd be sharing the, the, the space with people that are, you know, kind of a halfway house situation, people that are like you uh, coming off the streets that just need a break. And um, he said some people that are, you know, struggling with alcohol and drugs. He said, but we run a pretty tight ship. It's clean. You'll be safe. And you can use the address and get a job. And I was like, well, shit, that all sounds fine by me. Sure beats, you know, sleeping on the concrete floor of the Salvation Army every night. Um, so I head back with him. Well, it turns out that I'd have to be there six months under the ministry before I can qualify for what they considered work release. And at first I didn't balk at that. I was just really interested in being one, getting a shower. <laughs> I really wanted a shower and two, getting a safe place where I could leave my things and feel secure. Then I found out like we couldn't leave at all. We were there unless we had like a group sort of thing where we could leave. And that all just started kind of getting weird for me. The first person I meet while I'm there is like talking in tongues, which I had never really heard in real life, but I've heard of. And I had always thought that talking in tongues was was blasphemous unless somebody was translating. Well, this guy's doing his he's like pre doing his press work. Like he's he's ironing his clothes and he's like or whatever it is that, you know, those folks think is real. And so, you know, I found that to be pretty confusing and interesting. But anyway, so I'm there a couple days and the first few days, they just sort of let me do my own thing. And then the like third or fourth day, like it's on. Like I'm now a part of the whole situation. And part of that is at 4.30, we get woken up. At 5 o'clock, we go down and we pray. And then at 6 o'clock, we have Bible study. And then at 7 o'clock, we eat breakfast. And then at 8 o'clock, we have our chores. And then at 9 o'clock, we do some kind of Bible study. And on and on and on. We prayed three times throughout the day. It was just constant indoctrination. And it just was not something I, I was going to be able to cope with. Like, I can ride along with just about anything for a good amount of time. 
you know, I can tolerate and adapt to just about anything if necessary. And I kind of was trying to do that just because I was really looking at that six months like, okay, this, I mean, I was under the impression in my head that this is the only thing I had. It's this or Salvation Army, or I figure out how to walk, you know, all the way to my home, which was you know, 2000 miles. So that wasn't something I was going to do. So I did my best to kind of play along and do the thing. So we get to what had to be the weirdest church service I've ever attended. And, you know, being non-religious doesn't mean I was never in any kind of thing like this. Like I'd done Awanas and stuff like that as a kid. I've, I had gone to church services, but this was one of those Baptist church services where people are running up and down the aisleways. And, you know, there's ladies up at the front that are talking in tongues and like, there's, you know, the fire and brimstone shit and people are getting possessed by the Holy ghost and whatever the fuck else was going on. And I was just completely like my jaw was essentially to the floor. I was so confused. It's funny. Cause I remember the pastor though, the pastor was pretty cool. He, um, he was talking, he talked really reasonably. He was talking about being like true to yourself, being true to the message, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And he was giving these people a hard time that were talking in tongues, like saying like, you know, you can talk in tongues, but that doesn't mean that you're talking the language of the Lord and like, just really just throwing shade on them. And while again, like this was one of my very first instances. And the reason why all this is relevant is coming soon. But so this is one of my first instances where I start feeling like I can understand these messages without needing to believe in God. Like what this guy was saying was stuff that anybody should really be able to hear whether they believe or not. You know, it was things like just be kind to people, be kind to your neighbor, be kind because you want to be kind. Don't be kind because you're scared of the repercussions. Do the right thing because you know that's the right thing to do. And, you know, we can get into the whole philosophical social construct of what morality really means and what is good and all that if you really want. I think we can all kind of agree on a very basic concept of don't be unnecessarily rude to somebody because you're having a bad day. Don't hit people. Don't fucking steal shit. You know, things like that are obvious, right, to most people, and they should be. Uh, But throughout your day, honestly, if you took a look how many times you may have done something that you probably could have avoided doing that was maybe a little harmful to somebody else. This is just an eye opener. This is what I was taking it as from this guy who, while he was saying God every other word, was still talking directly to me and I was an atheist. Like, does that make sense? Like he was still saying this directly to me, even though he was sharing to the whole room and I didn't have to hear the words God. They weren't hurting my ears. You know what I mean? I wasn't leaving the the message on the floor because there was an aspect of it that I didn't appreciate or agree with. I wasn't rebelling against the whole concept of religion to the point to where I was closed off to the fact that there are people out there that while they believe a, a religion or a god or whatever that I disagree with are still of an altruistic, you know, sort of nature that they just want to do good. So that was the first kind of instance of this, hearing it from this pastor. And it came at a good point, right? It what I obviously it didn't go on to really do a lot of good then, uh, but it, it has since. So that was the first one, right? And I'm realizing I'm kind of getting a little carried away with this. I'm almost 20 minutes into this and I haven't really gotten anywhere yet. Uh, but I promise that, you know, at least for me, this will mean something. Hopefully someone else gets something out of it. So the second thing that happened, uh, I decide I'm going to leave. I can't handle the schedule, the rigid nature of everything. I can't handle the kind of like half and half some people are doing. Like one guy came in who was just kicking heroin and he's like, I'm going to be out in a couple days once I figure out where they have their money. You know, shit, shit like that. I was like, this is just this too much fucking chaos, but also too much like too many rules, which is funny where I would end up in a year and a half after that, but it was just too much. So I decided I'm going to leave. They haven't found my luggage, which is just a fucking bummer regardless. 
I'm going to leave. Now, the problem is I don't have any money. I don't have a way of earning any money. But what I've heard is that certain churches in the area, because it's near the holidays, have a fund that is usually available to help people get a bus ticket to uh, their city of, you know, wherever to get home for the holidays. They have funds set aside for helping people in my kind of a situation just get home for their holidays. The problem is, is that most of the time... This is for helping people get from like Austin to San Antonio, not 2,000 miles away. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think anything is going to really go my way at this point. I'm desperate. I start hitting every church I can. The first like seven churches I hit all told me no. They didn't have any money left. They did help. One bought me lunch. Another one got me shoes. Like it wasn't like they were telling me no because they didn't want to help me. They just didn't have the funds. But one of the churches was like, look, I think I know of one church that might still have some funds left, uh, but you'll have to go there after lunch. So I had like an hour to kill. So I go and I just sat in the area where they do like the meditation and prayer and stuff. It's a very small room. You know, there's that creepy ass Jesus hanging out on the wall and stuff. And, you know, I just remember being at peace there. And I just remember telling myself, look, whatever happens next, like we're not going to give up. Yeah, I'm giving myself a pep talk. And again, I haven't really, I haven't drank at all this whole time, which again is very strange for me. But I just remember feeling, you know, desperate, just completely without hope. I also felt like this wasn't going to be the end of the road. Like I didn't feel, it was a very strange place to be is all I can really say. I wasn't destitute in that this was the end of the road. I was going to, I was going to kill myself or anything like that. I wasn't really depressed, but I wasn't really feeling great. Like it just was... I was tired, man, is the best way to describe it. So I go and I talk to the pastor who's now now here. He's, he's left and come back. And the pastor's asking me these questions and I tell him everything. I'm completely honest. Oh, yeah, I forgot. In the middle of this, fuck. In the middle of this, I went to the police station because I was so desperate to get back that I was like, fuck it, if I go to the cops, they'll arrest me and I'll, you know, do time, but I'll at least get extradited back to Oregon. And I go and I call the cops and they're like, there's no record of anything having happened. You're not, there's no warrant out for your arrest. And I was like thinking, God damn it. They didn't put a warrant out for me. <laughs> Son of a bitch. And yeah, so maybe that was one of the few times in my life where I was real sad that I wasn't, <laughs> that I couldn't get arrested. I guess it happens. Uh, so anyways, I get the, I get the pastor's attention. We talk. I tell him exactly what's going on, that I'm struggling and that, um, I tell him also about the experience that I had at the church and that, you know, at this point, I just want to get home so I could try to like kind of set things right and do, do my best. At the time, I felt that like this wasn't a line. And I'm sure that he could tell the same thing. Like he felt that same thing. To me, that's how I felt. I just I would do anything to get back. And I won't lie. I prayed. I don't know what I prayed to or what I prayed for or, you know, exactly. But if you've drank like I have. You've probably, even as an atheist, may have dropped a prayer or two just because, fuck it, it couldn't hurt, right? It can't hurt. So yeah, there was a, there was a small moment in that little pew area where I, I prayed to just whatever. Like, hey, fucking universe, like, get me home and, I, and, I'll, and I'll make this shit right. And uh, the pastor, man, gave me out of his own money. He, he pulled a, a checkbook out of his own pocket. It had his name on it. It wasn't the church's checkbook. He pulls his checkbook out. He calls Greyhound. He finds out how much a bus ticket's going to be to get me home. He writes a check for that amount. He has a confirmation number he writes at the bottom of the check, so I can't use that check for anything else. And uh, out of his own money, he gives, it was like $122. And just he just gave some fucking dirty-ass, gothy kid $120 to get home for the holidays. He didn't force God on me. He didn't even bring it up. Just a dude doing something nice. So that's time number two, right? Where I'm like, maybe I need to rethink my hate 
for folks like this. Redirect it. So I get on the bus, right? And we're heading back. And in my head, I'm telling myself, yeah, man, I'm going to get home. Things are going to be different. I'm going to get, I'm going to get my, my shit together. I'm going to really try. I'm going to finish high school, blah, blah, blah. I get on the bus. I don't have any money. I don't have any food. There's this family that's on the bus. They notice this. It's just Portuguese family or no, not Portuguese. Excuse me. It's a South American family. They're not speaking Spanish, but they are. I can kind of understand a little bit of it. I used to know a little bit of Spanish from high school. So at that time it was still fairly, really fresh. And I could kind of understand it, but it sounded like like somebody talking real rural, hardcore, trailer park, Southern, you know, where it's like, if they go a little too fast, then it's just gibberish. That's kind of how it was with their Spanish. So I knew they weren't from Mexico, but they were from South America of some kind. Anyways, it seemed like a really nice family. I'm sitting next to the guy's daughter. I tried talking to her. It really didn't work out. She didn't speak any English. Well, he saw that I wasn't eating or I didn't have any food. He, he chatted me up a little bit. I told him, yeah, I was heading back to Portland, but I didn't have any food. This was a two and a half day bus trip like it's not a very it's gonna be a long it's gonna be a long trip man i'm gonna be real hungry when i get there and uh, i didn't ask him for anything i wasn't begging people for anything i was just like i'm just determined to make it there every time we stopped i just went in and drank as much water as i could and uh, he he just gives me 20 bucks and he's like go get some food and i go i'm fucking confused by that because i don't know why he would trust me with money like he doesn't know me so i go in and i it's like mcdonald's or whatever i get like a couple cheap items i come back and he like gets genuinely upset with me because i I didn't buy a meal and I didn't get something to drink and I just got like two dollars worth of stuff and gave him back the change and so so he he gives me his drink and then some snacks and stuff just to make sure that I'm fed him his family just wanted to make sure I'm fed you know I could tell by their garb not their clothes but like you know the lady had a rosary and he had a cross and his daughter had a cross that you know they were obviously religious like but again there was no mention of that and the good deeds they did like, he just wanted to do something. He just wanted to make sure I was fed, man. Like, there was no requirement there. So that was time number three. Uh, you know, I make it home. I go on and I do my scumbaggy shit. And I end up in prison. And, you know, didn't do anything with all this kindness that people gave me. So while that didn't really serve me in the moment, it didn't end up ultimately changing me at the time, that shaped very heavily the kind of person I am today. This is the sort of stuff I thought about as I got sober, even this last time, where there are no rules to kindness. Like, if you're being kind just for the sake of doing good, right, then that's, there's nothing wrong with that. If you happen to have a religion that maybe calls upon you to do this stuff, that doesn't detract the kindness that's being done. If there are other people in that religion that choose to do shitty things and hide behind that, that's a whole other story and that's different. And I think the reason why this is relevant to this chapter is, yes, before this, when I was younger and I was reading this stuff, I was very hateful and hurt harmful to the idea of Christian, you know, Christianity and religion and organized religion and even even coming out of prison and getting back into recovery and really getting into like doing like atheist meetings and agnostic meetings, like being in there, like I would just, I would like throw the atheism at people, you know, if you got me, if you were, if you were a worshiper and you got me into a conversation, I'm going to do my best at that time to tell you why it is that God's fake, why I'm better than you, because I don't need God to do good. I just choose to, which obviously, while maybe it doesn't detract from the good I'm doing, diminishes, you know, the good inside me, dims that light quite a bit. If like all I can think about doing is shitting on other people's belief systems, why is that even, you know, why was that even important to me? I can't really tell you. No more than I can tell you why other people feel threatened by the fact that I'm an atheist or that other people are. You know, it's a, I think maybe there was a part of me that was just scared that I was wrong. I don't really know. 
ultimately, as I've grown into my sobriety this time around and I've grown into my recovery, what's helped me are, are these past experiences. So I can look at a book like Alcoholics Anonymous and the religious aspect of that, and I can just, I can look past the God stuff. And yeah, I know some people that were harmed in religion because of family members that that really put this on them that that made them feel like their only chance was to not only rebel but to hate and fight these religious you know doctrines these these practices and principles so convincing somebody like that that there's no harm in the word god is is a thing i don't know if i'm even capable of but i'm certainly willing to try because while my experience tells me that there isn't any harm specifically in the words and that there are people that do good who are religious and just happen to be good people and they just feel that that's a part of them being good is that it's you know god's word or whatever i know there's i just know that there's going to be hurdles for people that they're not going to be able to overcome so i guess all of this feels relevant going into this next chapter because i think if people are going to drop off this is where if they're going to be like i just can't do it i can't get past this then this is the chapter that's going to happen. Because yeah, as an atheist, there's some parts of this that are they're a little insulting. And what makes it even more insulting is knowing that there were atheists that helped put this book together. This was a collective effort. This whole book was a bunch of people that came together to write it. It wasn't just Bill Wilson and it wasn't just Robert Smith. They didn't just sit down, write this thing and be like, cool guys, fucking do the thing. No, they wrote the book, they passed it around and some people gave them notes, some people wrote their own chapters. Some people said, you need to fix this stuff or we're gonna make a committee and fix it for you. And those two people ended up being atheists. One of them, Hank Parkhurst, yeah, basically put his foot down. was like, this isn't gonna go any further if you're not gonna allow me to put or change the wording to power greater than yourself or God as you understand it. So, you know, kind of learning a little bit about that history and then going into this chapter with everything I've kind of already explained. Like, if you're going into this chapter and you have any real hateful disregard for religion, this is going to be a tough one. It really is. Unless you can be open to hearing the in-betweens, the bits that maybe I kind of pull out of it, it's going to be a rough one. You know, I don't know if the story that I told about my own experience is going to be helpful to folks going into it, but it was for me. Like, those experiences helped me be able to at least hear this stuff, even if I didn't agree with it. So, that's where this very, very lengthy opening really comes in play. You know, I just hope that others can experience what comes next, I guess, in the framework that, yeah, it's a little insultive. It's a little condescending. It's a little annoying, and it, it makes it seem like they just plain don't understand atheists in general, even though they had some on the crew that put this book together. And while some of that, even all of that is true, ultimately, this isn't the meatiest part of the book. It isn't the one where the work's even done. The only reason why I'm even bothering to read it is because I think it's important to sort of see... I guess, you know, some of it's just like the historian in me, like just knowing for myself all the words as they were written to see what I should disregard, to see what kind of ammo I'm, I need to have, to see what I'm up against. And when I say that, I mean that this is what believers are choosing to believe about agnostics and atheists. You know what I mean? Like this is what they're reading and they're nodding along and they're saying, yep, that's about right. When they're looking at us and this is the information that they have to go off of. So based on that, this is what they use to decide how to treat us. Not every one of the people that are in AA who are of a religious you know, mindset have, will choose to treat us this way. But a lot of the times when there is kind of that weird like, and if you've been in enough meetings, you know what I mean? That kind of weird like if you announce that you're an atheist, there's like shares in the group, in the room that start being directed at you. 
suddenly everybody's super religious that that day maybe they start talking about their god experience when they never really do before that or after that they're a little extra jesus heavy and and maybe they're looking at you a little more than they they have before you know maybe there's some ill intent there but ultimately what i think it comes down to is that this is the information they have They've chosen what's in that book, and they're like, that's as far as I understand atheists or agnostics, and that's as far as I will. But I like to believe that everybody has the capability of learning and changing. I did, a lot over the years. Bill Wilson did. Even Robert Smith did. Other members of the groups did. Secular AA essentially sprang from the fact that Jim Burwell and Hank Parkhurst didn't really believe that religion should be tied to this stuff. So they had a different version of the program that they sort of espoused to the other groups they had their own little section where they didn't talk as much god stuff or even at all so that's a very rambly opening and i mean shit at this point i'm what 40 minutes or yeah 40 minutes in almost i haven't even gotten to the daily stoic so let's try to i'm gonna try to make that quick and we can get right into we agnostics and you know before we do if anybody has their own experience like this obviously not like mine but some sort of an experience that has shaped how they view religion good or bad or Whatever the experience was that sort of helped them become atheist or just whatever it is that that has them in the position they are now. If they if you want to share that, you know, please do. You can find me on Facebook at an atheist reads the big book of AA. You can find me on Twitter at an atheist in. You can find me on Instagram at an atheist in AA. You can even send me an email at one atheist in AA at gmail.com. I'm open to discourse, good or bad, however you want to look at this, however you want to expel this stuff out of you. Like, if you just want to share your experience with me, I'm here to listen. If also you feel that, you know, I went off a little too much or however the format is that you'd like me to stick to, like if you'd like me to do less of this sort of pre-talk before the talk, um, if you want me to do more of it, you know, if you feel like I'm just kind of repeating myself and I'm getting a little over zealous with this sort of stuff whatever whatever feedback i get from you guys i'm gonna listen to it i might not make direct changes just based on one or two people but the the feedback that i get good or bad is going to be helpful just lets me know what direction i'm going in you know lets me know that people are actually listening lets me know that people are actually connecting with this even if it isn't the kind of connection i i think it should be or expect out of it or because i'm not really expecting much i'm not really going into this expecting i'm going to change the world or something I honestly am going into this expecting that I might be the only person that listens to it, to be quite honest. So any feedback is going to be great. But specifically this, if you want to talk about your religious experience or what's led you down the path that you are on as an atheist or agnostic, you know, I'm here to listen and connect on that. All right. So this is the Daily Stoic. Uh, Again, for those that are maybe new to this, hopefully I haven't lost you up until this point. Uh, This is a book by Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman. Uh, It takes a bunch of transcriptions from Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. Uh, It gives like just the kind of quote from them, and then it goes into a little bit of a uh, a hot take by the authors. Um, Sometimes it's a great take. Sometimes I don't really think it matches the reading. In any event, this just sort of helps me get my day going, so I like to use it to kind of get this podcast going and it just gives me i think something to kind of riff on um to start things gets me in the mindset of what's coming next and even if i don't necessarily agree with like their take on it or even the reading it gets me thinking about more than just what's on my twitter feed or something so again this is uh, august 21st don't be miserable in advance it's ruinous for the soul to be anxious about the future and miserable in advance of misery engulfed by anxiety that the things it desires might remain its own until the very end for such a soul will never be at rest 
By longing for things to come, it will lose the ability to enjoy present things. Seneca, Moral Letters 98.5b. Dash 6a. The way we nervously worry about some looming bad news is strange if you think about it. By definition, the waiting means it hasn't happened yet, so that feeling bad in advance is totally voluntary. But that's what we do. Chewing our nails, feeling sick to our stomach, rudely brushing aside the people around us. Why? Because something bad might occur soon? The pragmatist, the person of action, is too busy to waste time on such silliness. The pragmatist can't worry about every possible outcome in advance. Think about it. Best case scenario, the, the news turns out to be better than expected. All this time was wasted with needless fear. Worst case scenario, we were miserable for extra time by choice. And what better use could you make of that time? A day that could be your last. You want to spend it in worry? In what other area could you make some progress while others might be sitting on the edges of their seat, passively awaiting some fate? Let the news come when it does. Be too busy working to care. Yeah, I can get behind that. I think the the message is pretty clear both in the reading and, and in their, or both in the quote and in their sort of take on it. And yeah, I suffer from anxiety. I'll say that I've been able to manage my anxiety a lot better in the last six months than I have ever in my entire life, maybe even last year. Uh, but before that time, I was riddled in the what if. I lived in the what if. My whole existence was based on the what if. You know, I was the kind of person that I would say something to somebody that maybe was off color. I'd think about that shit for a whole week. The next time I saw him, it'd be like, dude, I'm so sorry. And of course, most of the time they're like, what are you even talking about? Now, before I got sober, it was different. The what if became this thing that I just chewed on and suffered through and let build up. What if these people didn't like me? What if this person didn't like me? It was a lot of my what ifs. A lot of my anxiety was built around what others may or may not have thought of me. At no point in my life have I ever known what somebody actually thinks about me. Ever. It's patently impossible for me to ever know what somebody truly thinks about me. They could do their best to kind of conceptualize how they might feel about me, but even if they're talking about me to somebody else, there's still just kind of preloaded specific take on that them telling that person is going to be persuaded by their interaction and relationship by, with that person maybe they're saying something shitty just to save face maybe they're something saying something extra nice just to look good like who fucking knows ultimately and i used to just sit and worry about how people possibly might look at me that i never had an identity of my own even when I got into sobriety, my entire identity the first year and a half, 18 months, was 100% built around the idea that it was going to be for somebody else. I'm not saying I got sober for anybody else, but the hobbies I chose, the, the adventures I went on, the things I learned, the clothes I wore, the exercises I did, so much of that was just built around the idea of how others might view me. And I know that anxiety that they talk about can broach so many other subjects. It can touch on money. It can touch on the work you have it at the office or at the warehouse or wherever. It can touch on past transgressions that might catch up to you. It can touch on family matters. That anxiety, that worry of things that haven't happened yet, the living in tomorrow that will never occur. I just, I did that for so long. And it wasn't until recently where I just, I just, oh, I think I just exhausted myself from it. What it came down to, I had a really bad experience after breaking up with that girl that I've mentioned before that I sort of let into my life who wasn't healthy for me. And I wasn't really in a healthy place either. After that breakup, I got into a really bad place and I finally went and I saw a counselor and I got medication. And this isn't to say that everybody needs this in order to manage their own anxiety. But up until this point, I had done a lot of work 
that was really beneficial to my anxiety and how I felt others might view me. But I was still kind of living in this whole, the things I do, I do for how others might view me. And there was just some kind of a break, man. Once I started talking to this counselor and I started really looking at my motivations, my interactions with people, I was able to really deep, you know, dive deep into what caused that. My relationships, my attachment issues, all this stuff. Honestly, I can say for the first time in my life, I'm not ruled by that anxiety. It still crops up. I still have issues with it, but it's something I've been able to finally be, you know, come to terms with and manage. And there's no reason for me to believe that I would have been able to do that outside of sobriety. And it wasn't immediate. It wasn't like the second I quit drinking, all this shit got easy. It took a long time for me to actually make any real headway on this stuff. And I put myself into some very uncomfortable situations in order to overcome a lot of this. I did a lot of very social things that I really didn't want to do in order to kind of learn how to, how to overcome the kind of anxiety that I have, the social anxiety that I have. So yeah, now I live in this moment of I've never been right about all of the future tripping I've done. I've never been right. I've been close. And like it said, yeah, and when I was right and it was something miserable, I was just miserable for extra time. And if I was wrong, then it was time wasted, exactly as it said, because the result turned out better than I expected or completely different than I expected. And all that time I had spent worrying about it, I could have been doing something else. All right, so I think I've definitely, I don't know, wasted enough time with this. So this is, we might end up having to split this one in half just because I yapped for so much. We'll see what I can do with it. This is We Agnostics, Chapter 4 of the Big Books of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope we have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if, when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably an alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Now, for the sake of some brevity and the fact that I have kind of gone over and over a lot of the things that might be contained in this as far as like, obviously, a spiritual experience isn't necessary. Sometimes a psychic one is, I mean, obviously enough for people, some sort of psychic change, a light switch moment, um... So I won't, I won't get too deep into uh, most of this stuff, but I'm not also going to just sit and read this because that might get, uh, it's just boring. So that being said, it's about to get real good. To one who feels he is an atheist or agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. But to continue as he is means disaster, especially if he is an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on in a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. So basically, the book's outlining the, the idea that if you can't give up the fact you're an atheist or an agnostic, then you're doomed to live an alcoholic life, which obviously isn't really the case. It just isn't. But it isn't so difficult. About half our original fellowship were exactly that type. At first, some of us tried to avoid the issue, hoping against hope we were not true alcoholics. But after a while, we had to face the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life or else. Perhaps it is going to be that way with you. But cheer up. Something like half of us thought we were atheists or agnostics. Our experience shows that you need not be disconcerted. And this is where I say this is sort of an insultive section of the book. It's not embracing the idea that we're an atheist or agnostic and we can make this work for us. It's it's coming from a place of, well, you just think you are. Clearly, clearly you just haven't given this enough thought. And if you want to stay sober and be relieved of the feeling of doom, then you better find some sort of spirituality because otherwise you're going to die. 
Like that's kind of how this comes across to me. The first few times I read this, that's definitely how it came came across. There's again, there's a few things to take into consideration. This is coming from people from a, a place of desperation where they felt that this was the missing component to staying sober for life after having completely ruined, irrevocably ruined every aspect of their life previously. This seemed to be the only missing part. And when they say there were, you know, half the members thought they were atheist or agnostic, and they just hadn't learned their lesson yet, there were some that remained. If a mere code of morals or better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. And see, and now I think this is really where they're coming from. They don't want to believe that others can figure this shit out without God, because then it puts into question their own beliefs. It shouldn't, honestly. But, you know, think about it. If you've spent your whole life or finally come to the point to where you feel like God could relieve you of this thing that's been killing you and someone else comes along and gets the same results without God, that's going to make you question this huge event. And that makes sense on why they might kind of rebel against that. I just think we've come at a, you know, to a place in our civilization where we understand that my belief doesn't affect yours. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us, no matter how much we tried. We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will these things with all our might. But the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Obviously. But where and how were we to find this power? So this comes from, and I think this is all bore out of the idea that up until this point, it was considered a weakness of will, a human character flaw that one was probably born with, I guess, that made them incapable of quitting drinking. There was some sort of character flaw. And the only way to prove that that character flaw could be overcome is through a higher power, a god. Being, you know, going to people and saying, well, God has helped me overcome this in this time period, specifically... That, that didn't make you weak. It made you strong, right? But in, again, at the same time, if an atheist came along and said, well, I got the same thing as you from quitting and reading the book, that's just challenging their experience. And yeah, it sucks, man, that some people might look at it that way. But I'll be honest, like once you get into AA, if you choose that this is your path, you're going to start looking at other recovery programs kind of the same way. You're going to start becoming a little defensive of AA. Maybe. I am. Like, not all the time, but if I see other people, like, questioning the validity of AA and how it works, I'm like, you're going to do harm to all these other people that are in AA. You're going to make them drink. That's not how it works. That's just kind of where my mind first goes. I don't say anything. Like, I don't just start running around making, you know, causing arguments with people because they're suddenly questioning AA and they don't have nice things to say. But that experience definitely brings to light the idea that, yeah, I can see where these other people are coming from. I can see their motivation. This isn't a matter of them forcing me to be religious in context. It's a matter of them protecting their belief or feeling like they have to, feeling attacked. Whether we're attacking or not, whether an atheist in the group is an attack or not, people get defensive, man. People get defensive about some weird shit. People get defensive at the store because you cut in line. Of course, they're going to become defensive if they think that your lack of reco- your lack of God in your recovery is somehow a reflection on them being weak because they need one. Anyways, well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. (sighs) That means we've written a book which we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. And it means, of course, that we are going to talk about God. Here, difficulty arises with agnostics. Many times we talk to a new man and watch his hope rise as we discuss his alcoholic problems and explain our fellowship. 
but his face falls when we speak of spiritual matters, especially when we mention God, for we have reopened a subject which our man thought he had neatly evaded or entirely ignored. And that is the purpose of my podcast, is to tell you that you can entirely ignore it. You just can. And for any and all that are listening to this that are of a religious mind, you can believe in something too. Like, it's fine. You can also have your higher power. Both seem to work equally as well. We know how he feels. We have shared his honest doubt and prejudice. Some of us have been violently anti-religious. That was me at one point. To others, the word God brought up a particular idea of him which, with which someone had tried to impress them during childhood. Perhaps we rejected this particular conception because it seemed inadequate. With that rejection, we imagined we had abandoned the God idea entirely. We were bothered with the thought that faith and dependence upon a power beyond ourselves was somewhat weak, even cowardly. We looked upon this world of warring individuals, warring theological systems, and inexplicable calamity with deep skepticism. We looked askance at many individuals who claimed to be godly. How could a supreme being have anything to do with it all? And who could comprehend a supreme being anyhow? Yet, in other moments, we found ourselves thinking, when enchanted by a starlit night, who then made all this? There was a feeling of awe and wonder, but it was fleeting and soon lost. And yeah, I get this too. Like, I mean, of course, there's periods in my life where I had thought, well, this is all pretty fucking nuts to think that it just, like, accidentally happened. But at the same time, it's also just as inconceivable to consider that there's just some dude that sat around in darkness that was like, seven days later, here's the world. You know, like, my decision to look at the fact that there are thousands of religions that it's all geographical, that as social media opens up, the possibilities for more religion, there isn't one that just slowly rises to the top. There's just many, possibly just as many, maybe even more versions of the many than there were before. And yet, all three of the people that I mentioned earlier in this, that I met on my little journey to Austin, Texas and back, were all very much from different versions of religion. One was extremely Baptist. One, I'm guessing, was Protestant. And another was Catholic. On paper, they don't get along, man. On paper, one of them thinks the other one's going to hell for believing what they believe in. But every one of them did the same kind of kindness. And I am just as capable of that kindness without a deity behind me that I'm scared of. Or a heaven that I'm trying to get into. Human nature just exists with or without God. And there's a good side and a bad side of that. So, yeah, I mean, I get, like I said, that people are going to be very protective of their belief system and... Some people are going to be very protective of their lack of belief. But at the end of the day, one or the other isn't required to keep you sober. Okay, for sure, I am now repeating myself. Yes, we of agnostic temperament have had these thoughts and experiences. Let us make haste to reassure you. We have found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results, even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. So they define it, right? <laughs> which is, of course they... Of course they define it. We don't know how to define this thing, which is God. Anyways, much to our relief, we discovered we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and effect a contact with him. As soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. We found that God does not make too hard terms with those who, he, who seek him. To us, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. It is open, we believe, to all men. 
So yeah, I have an issue with this paragraph. This whole idea of it's, you know, the realm of God is open as long as you seek it. But if you don't, you're fucked. Like you, you might as well just give up. If you don't believe, then you can't be invited to our club. Just... And that takes me back to like a younger man's version of how I looked at this. So are you saying that just before the Bible was written, anybody else up until that point was going straight to fucking hell? Like what version of this do we actually go along with? Like how deeply do we look at this like seek out God thing? The ultimate thing I've taken away from all this is you have to have the ability to let go of and the reason why that reading was very important, I think, to this section, you have to let go of that anxiety I know it seems like I'm being insultive to simplify like the entire existence of a higher power to fucking anxiety, but that's honestly a lot of what it is. Holding on to these 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 preconceived ideals inside ourselves that drive us to drink all comes down to the idea of letting go. If you can just let go, and and the the concept of that can be fucking terrifying. But if you can, if you can just allow things to be, allow them to exist. Not attach yourself to all these things, negative or positive. You have so much control over your life. I have so much control over my life. I choose to attach myself to things. Some things become, you know, they grow on me over time and they become something that feels like it's even more of an attachment than I have control over. The relationships I have with people, the relationship I have with sobriety. But I choose that attachment because over time I have learned to just sort of be. I I can give over decision making to this program. Not 100%. Sometimes I still feel like I have the best idea in mind of how things should go. But again, I've come to really just understand if I follow the simple rules, things progressively get better and I don't drink. So no, I don't believe that this is a higher power. I just believe that I can give over those things that drove me to drink to this program, to the people in it, to the people that came before me. And that's not me like giving up responsibility. I still have to deal with everything, but I give over that attachment to it. And I don't expect to philosophically explain what that actually means to people. All I can really explain is that it is very possible to learn how to surrender in this program as a non-believer and not have it be any kind of a spiritual experience. And you can use a different word than surrender. I've chosen that word because, man... I'm a fucking hardhead, I'm stubborn, and sometimes I just have to kind of give up on knowing or the feeling that I know everything. And again, if this is stuff that like, if you're struggling with it and this is just getting harder for you to understand and you're like, fuck you, dude, it's not that easy, send me a line, man. Send me an email, oneatheistinaa at gmail.com. Hit me up on Facebook, an atheist reads the big book of AA, Twitter, oneatheistin. Like, come find me. We can have a discussion about it. I can see if I can help make this make a little bit more sense than I am right now. Because right now, I just feel like maybe I'm getting a little too wordy about this. I'm never going to finish this reading at this point. (laughs) Like, it's never going to end. I'm just going to keep talking. When, therefore, we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. This applies, too, to other spiritual experiences which you find in this book. Do not let any prejudice you may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. This part I do agree with. Definitely explore this stuff. Don't be scared to think about it. You could end up ultimately feeling that you do have a belief in God or a higher power. Fucking so what? Like that's a, that's a thing that can happen. Don't be scared of that either. If it brings you peace and comfort in your life, explore it. If it makes you a little happier as an atheist, explore it. If it may- means that you can eventually respect other people that are in religion, fucking explore it. 
At the start, this was all we needed to commence spiritual growth, to affect our first conscious relation with God as we understood him. Afterward, we found ourselves expecting many things, which then seemed entirely out of reach. That was growth, but if we wished to grow, we had we had to begin somewhere. So we used our own conception, however limited it was. We needed to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe, or am I willing to believe, that there is a power greater than myself? And the question I would ask you, are you willing to accept the possibility that other people have come up with a blueprint for a way of life that can increase the quality of your life? Can you, can you at least come to terms with the possibility that that's a real thing? As soon as a man can say that he does believe or is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. Now, it's at this general point that people in the program are like, just choose good orderly direction, group of drunks. Look at a doorknob and say, that's my higher power. Use the group as your higher power. And that one kind of resonates a little bit more, more with me. I've definitely learned that if I reach out to help for help and guidance, my results tend to be a little bit better. Even if I don't follow their guidance, the fact that I've reached out and talked it through and had that conversation with somebody else and gotten it off my chest and I'm not alone and it's not somebody that's my friend, so they're not going to gaslight me or fill me, you know, just like try to be nice to me. They're going to tell me like it is like that all that all comes from this program and the idea that as long as I believe the very basic concept that me doing that will help that it usually does. That was great news to us, for we had assumed we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith which seemed difficult to believe. When people presented us with spiritual approaches, how frequently, frequently did we say, I wish I had what that man has. I'm sure it could work if I could only believe as he believes, but I cannot accept as surely true the many articles of faith which are so plain to him. So it was comforting to learn that we could commence at a simpler level. Besides a seemingly inability to accept much on faith, we often found ourselves handicapped by obstinacy, sensitiveness, and unreasoning prejudice. Many of us have been so touchy that even casual reference to spiritual things make us bristle with antagonism. This sort of thinking had to be abandoned, and I agree with that as well. If you're going to come into a program like this as a non-believer, you have to be prepared to hear shit you don't like, and not let it affect your entirety of sobriety. Like, I've heard so many people say, AA made me drink because there's too many people in it that believe in God, or it's too God-heavy, or I can't hear the word Jesus Christ without wanting a drink, or, like, that, I'm not gonna lie, man, that is, that is your decision. That Nobody can make you do shit, and words don't have that effect on anybody. And this is coming from somebody who spent time in prison, where saying the word punk could get you hospitalized just calling somebody a bitch could get you stabbed words are just words man they don't have any power so hearing somebody say it took jesus christ for me to get sober shouldn't be enough to make somebody go out and drink and i see a lot of people say well aa is bullshit because i drank after hearing somebody talk about god in a meeting i'm sorry that's all on you i am not an anomaly my willingness to sit in a meeting even when people are talking about god and remain sober doesn't make me in a you know one of a kind fucking being i'm not plenty of us out there if god is that hard to hear then that's something you need to work on but it's not the fault of the speaker though some of us resisted we found no great difficulty in casting aside such feelings faced with alcoholic destruction we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions in this respect alcohol was a great persuader it finally beat us into a state of reasonableness 
Sometimes this was a tedious process. We hope no one else will be prejudiced for as long as some of us were. The reader may still ask why he should believe in a power greater than himself. We think there are good reasons. Let us have a look at them. The practical individual of today is a stickler for facts and results. Nevertheless, the 20th century readily accepts theories of all kinds, provided they are firmly grounded in fact. We have numerous theories, for example, about electricity. Everybody believes them without a murmur of doubt. Why this ready acceptance? Simply because it is impossible to explain what to see, feel, direct, and use without a reasonable assumption as a starting point. I mean, I, I knew they were going to kind of, like, okay, yeah, they're going to go the whole, like, electricity route. But this is where, this is where my sort of free thinking comes in. If, if there are people out there, and there are still civilizations, that if you show them electricity, they're going to think it's a spiritual power, then that sort of more proves that things we don't understand will become explained to me. That doesn't help me think that there's spiritual shit out there. Electricity is not a phantom. It's not, it's not misunderstood and just a thing in the cosmos that occurs and we just accept it. There's fucking reason for it. <laughs> It's been heavily explained and heavily, ex you know, uh, explored. And there's huge amounts of education surrounding its workings. So whole careers built around electricity. Everybody nowadays believes in sources of assumptions for which there is good evidence, but no perfect visual proof. And does not science demonstrate that visual proof is the weakest proof? It is being constantly revealed as mankind studies the material world that outward appearances are not inward reality at all. To illustrate... The prosaic steel girder is a mass of electrons whirling around each other at incredible speed. These tiny bodies are governed by precise laws, and these laws hold true throughout the material world. Science tells us so. We have no reason to doubt it. When, however, the perfectly logical assumption is suggested that underneath the material world and life as we see it, there is an all-powerful guiding creative intelligence, right there our perverse streak comes to the surface and we laboriously set out to convince ourselves it isn't so. I don't have to laboriously convince myself of anything. Just to be clear. We read wordy books and indulge in windy arguments, thinking we believe this universe needs no God to explain it. Were our contentions true, it would follow that life originated out of nothing, means nothing, and proceeds nowhere. So, yeah, ultimately, I don't need to know the answers to those things for me to believe that there is no God to explain those things. I don't need to know how electricity works to understand that there is scientific methods to how electricity works. Instead of regarding ourselves as intelligent agents, spearheads of God's ever-advancing creation, we agnostics and atheists chose to believe that our human intelligence was the last word, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of all. Rather vain of us, wasn't it? I love that he's the, the author is talking as if they're representatory of all agnostics and, athe and atheists. We who have traveled this dubious path beg you to lay aside prejudice even against organized religion. I do agree with that. I don't think it does us any good to be at war with organized religion. There's all kinds of problems with organized religion, of course. There's all kinds of problems with all kinds of stuff. You know what I mean? Like, if you want to choose religion as the reason you drink, I go ahead. That's fine. I can't stop you. But if you're going to choose that, I got a list of shit that you can also choose. And it doesn't have to be organized religion. Either way, it's a matter of convenience at that point. At least that's how I look at it. I can't get over that these other people believe shit that I don't think is true. I better go drink. Anyways, we have learned that whatever the human frailties of various faiths may be, those faiths have given purpose and direction to millions. That I also agree with. There's some people that just have chosen this and that's their thing and that's what they believe. And yeah, maybe I do think it's stupid on some level and in some cases harmful. But me railing against that and causing myself to have a negative life experience 
doesn't stop them from believing that. Me running around telling people they're stupid for believing in God doesn't stop them from believing in God. It just makes me an asshole. People of faith have a logical idea of what life is all about. Actually, we used to have no reasonable conception whatever. We used to amuse ourselves by cynically dissecting spiritual beliefs and practices when we might have observed that many spiritually minded persons of all races, colors, and creeds were demonstrating a degree of stability, happiness, and usefulness which we should have sought ourselves. And that I'll agree with as well. The reason why I prefer AA is because the fellowship that they have is kind of modeled around similar fellowships that are of a religious nature. It's a whole community and network of people that are just there supporting each other. That is one thing some religions get right. It really is. And I'm not saying that you can't find those communities in atheism, but it's just not something I've really experienced a lot of. Instead, we looked at the human defects of these people and sometimes used their shortcomings as a basis for wholesome conde uh, condemnation. We talked of intolerance while we were intolerant of others. We missed the reality and the beauty of the forest because we were diverted by the ugliness of some of its trees. We never gave the spiritual side of life a fair hearing. And this is important too. Like, I listen to my friends who are, of, are, are believers. I listen to their experiences and their feelings and how they look at the world. I don't like living in an echo chamber and I do it with an openness to just hear them because at the end of the day when I hear people that are that I, I do have friends that are religious when I hear them at their truest that sounds a lot like how I want to be or it sounds like how I am and again that's without God so I I can exist on their, their same wavelength and there's an inclusiveness to that and again like what kind of a person would I be if if I could have that experience with somebody and then turn around and be like by the way I'm an atheist and I'm better than you because I don't believe in God and there's something wrong with you because you do and organization organized religions bullshit and you should abandon all that and believe what I believe because I think I'm right in our personal stories you will find a wide variation in the way each teller approaches and conceives of the power which is greater than himself whether we agree with a particular approach or conception seems to make little difference. Experience has taught us that these matters about which, for our purpose, we need not be worried. They are questions for each individual to settle for himself. You know, it looks like I got about seven pages left. I'm just going to go for it. I think this episode's just going to be a little longer than usual. That's fine. You could break it up. <laughs> I don't think I'll get too much hate for it being just a little longer. On one proposition, however, these men and women are strikingly agreed. Every one of them has gained access to and believe in a power greater than themselves. <laughs> this power has in each case accomplished the miraculous, the humanly impossible. As a celebrated American statesman put it, let's look at the record. Okay, again, again. It's so weird for me to know that there were people that were atheists that remained atheists after this book was written, and they're still producing this chapter. Here are thousands of men and women worldly indeed. They flatly declare that since they have come to believe in a power greater than themselves, to take a certain attitude towards that power, and to do certain simple things. There has been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. In the face of collapse and despair, in the face of the total failure of their human resources, they found that a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. This happened soon after they wholeheartedly met a few simple requirements. One confused and baffled by the seeming futility of existence, they show the underlying reasons why they were making heavy going of life. Leaving aside the drink question, they tell why living was so unsatisfactory. They show how the change came over them. When many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives, they present a powerful reason why one should have faith. I mean, maybe, but like the pragmatist in me is looking at that as just words on a piece of paper. Yes, yeah, seeing and hearing 
a shit ton of people say like the Lord's Prayer is powerful. Hearing a shit ton of people at a ministry concert is powerful. All chanting the lyrics. Like it it doesn't, that power of unison doesn't come from a spiritual nature. It's just there is a power, a giant mob of people sharing an experience, repeating words of a similar nature being present for something magnificent, even if it's just people saying they're sober. There's no God there. It's just a very interesting aspect of human nature. Not much different than the idea that if you smile, you'll make somebody else smile because it's psychologically contagious. Anyways, this world of ours has made more material progress in the last century than it in all the millenniums which went before. Almost everyone knows the reason. Students of ancient history tell us that the intellect of men in those days was equal to the best of today. Yet, in ancient times, material progress was painfully slow. The spirit of modern scientific inquiry, research, and invention was almost unknown. In the realm of material, men's minds were fettered by superstition, tradition, and all sorts of fixed ideas. Some of the contemporaries of Columbus thought around Earth preposterous. Others came near putting Galileo to death for his astronomical heresies. They're talking about people of the church <laughs> who were doing this. So, yeah, what they're trying to say is... Religion was the reason why we were held back. So I could get some hatred for religion from some folks. And I think they just kind of missed that whole point when they were writing that out. They were like, this is proof that God is great. And it's like, no, this is proof that religion can really set folks back millennia. If given the opportunity, we asked ourselves this, are not some of us just as biased and unreasonable about the realm of the spirit as we were the ancients about the realm of the material? Even in the present century, American newspapers were afraid to print on account of the Wrights brothers' first successful flight at Kitty Hawk. Had not all efforts of flight failed before? Did not Professor Langley's flying machine go to the bottom of the Potomac River? Was it not true that the best mathematical minds had proved man could never fly? Had not people said God had reserved this privilege to the birds? Only 30 years later, the conquest of air was almost an old story and airplane travel was in full swing. So basically, science was like, God said we can't do this, we're gonna do it anyway. And it's weird that they're using this as an example of why we should be open to the concept of God. Just going to throw that out there. But in most fields, our generation has witnessed complete liberation in thinking. Show any longshoreman a Sunday supplement describing a proposal to explore the moon by means of a rocket. He will say, I bet they I bet they do it. Maybe not so long either. Is not our age characterized by the ease with which we discard old ideas for new? By the complete readiness, we throw away the theory or gadget which does not work for something new which does? I mean, yeah, we all do that with cell phones. But I am going to just point out that they mentioned, you know, telling somebody that we're going to send a rocket to the moon. They're like, yeah, I bet we do. Uh, there's also people that think the Earth is flat. So, you know, sometimes people are dumb, man. There's just no getting around that. We had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. Now that I do agree with. Be open. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and despair. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar flight? Of course it was. I just really don't even know what their point is there. When we saw others solve their problems by a simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe, we had to stop doubting the power of God. Our ideas did not work, but the God idea did. And so again, just touching on this, the concept that they're really explaining here is this idea of just sort of letting go of the control of your life. Not letting go and letting God, but just 
Stop feeling like you have complete and direct control of every aspect of your life, and any time it goes outside of that control, it's some sort of a failing or some sort of a calamity, when ultimately, if you just kind of give up on the idea that you can micromanage and control every aspect of your life, good things happen or start to happen. The Wright brothers' almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment, except they did just previously point out that supposedly God didn't allow it. Without that, nothing could have happened. We agnostics and atheists were sticking to the idea that self-sufficiency would solve our problems, which it did for them. When others showed us that God sufficiently worked with them, we began to feel like those who had insisted the, right, the rights could never fly. Logic is great stuff. We like it. We still like it. I mean, do, do you? Because you said the reason why the Wright brothers shouldn't be able to fly is because God wasn't you know, going to allow it. And then you're saying that the fact that they could fly just means that now we were like the ones who said God wouldn't allow I don't know. It is not by chance we were given the power to reason, to examine the evidence of our sense, and to draw conclusions. That is one of man's significant attributes. We agnostically inclined could not feel satisfied with a proposal which does not lend itself to reasonable approach and interpretation. Hence, we are at pains to tell why we think our present faith is reasonable, why we think it more sane and logical to believe than not to believe, why we say our former thinking was soft and mushy when we threw up our hands in doubt and said, we don't know. When we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis we could not postpone or evade, we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? And I've made it pretty clear what mine was. Arrived at this point, we were squarely confronted with the question of faith. We couldn't duck the issue. Some of us had already walked over to the bridge of reason toward the desired shore of faith. The outlines of the promise of the new land had brought luster to tired eyes and fresh courage to flagging spirits. Fucking Bill W, man. Friendly hands had stretched out and welcome. We were grateful that reason had brought us so far, but somehow we couldn't quite step ashore. Perhaps we had been leaning too heavily on reason that last minute, and we did not like to lose our support. So that word faith, man. I mean, faith is a very, like I said before, a very powerful thing. And that's kind of, I think, what they were meaning with, like, we have faith in electricity working. I don't need to know everything about electricity to know that when I plug a thing in, it should turn on and do a thing it's designed to do. I have faith in all the little little bits of things working in there. It doesn't mean it's supernatural. It just means that I don't need to understand it. That's kind of how I view this program. I don't have a degree to be able to dissect everything about this program. I don't have the kind of degree to dissect why it is that a group of people on a Zoom call can't say a bunch of words in unison that they can say in the same room together. What I know is that when we're in a room together and we say those words and they're in unison, there's a power to it. And when we try to do it on a Zoom call, it's a fucking god-awful mess. That connectivity that exists when we're in person, to me, I guess, is sort of like the closest I come to a spiritual sense of faith in how this program works. That was natural, but let us think a little more closely without knowing it. Had we not been brought to where we stood by a certain kind of faith? Did we not have confidence in our ability to think? What was that but a sort of faith? Yes, we had been faithful, objectively faithful to the God of reason. So in one way or another, we discovered that faith had been involved all the time. We found, too, that we had been worshippers. <laughs> what a state of mental goose flesh that used to bring on. Had we not variously worshipped people, sentiment, things, money, and ourselves? And then, with a better motive, had we not worshipfully 
beheld the sunset, the sea, or the flower. Now, I'm, I will admit, yeah, there was plenty of shit that I worshipped in my drinking. There's plenty of shit that I warped up, worshipped in my sobriety. I worshipped the the concept of a relationship. Like, so much of my life was built around that idea of just finding a committed relationship. I didn't worship money, but I worshipped, like, my sense of my time. I would go to really bizarre great lengths to make sure that I had disposable time to just do whatever I wanted to. Who of us had not loved something or somebody? How much did those feelings, these loves, those worships, have to do with pure reason? Little or nothing we saw at last. Were not these things the tissue out of which our lives were constructed? Did not these feelings, after all, determine the course of our existence? It was impossible to say we had no capacity for faith or love or worship. In one form or another, we had been living by faith and little else. Yeah, again, like I turn on my computer, I have faith that all the shit that goes on inside that computer is going to work and it's going to turn on. If it doesn't, I have faith that I'm going to be able to fix it. And if it doesn't become fixed, I have faith that eventually I'll be able to replace it. Like I just, you know, living a life of like kind of free from this constant state of anxiety is kind of living a life in the feeling that I have faith that shit's going to work out. But again, it doesn't have to be spiritual or supernatural. There's just kind of a peace in not being so fucking obsessed with the outcome before the outcome occurs and that to me yeah i guess encompasses that word faith imagine life without faith were nothing left but pure reason it wouldn't be life but we lived <laughs> but we believed in life of course we did we could not prove uh, life in the sense that you can prove a straight line is the shortest distance between two points yet there it was could we still say the whole thing was nothing but a mass of electrons created out of nothing, meaning nothing, whirling on to a destiny of nothingness? I mean, I can, personally. Of course not. The electrons themselves seem more intelligent than that. At least, so the chemist said. Hence, we saw that reason isn't everything. Neither is reason, as most of us use it, entirely dependable, though it uh, emanate from our best minds. What about people who proved that man could never fly? Again, those people were religious, man. You just said that. Yet we had been seeing another kind of flight, a spiritual liberation from this world, people who rose above their problems. They said God made these things possible, and we only smiled. We had seen spiritual release, but liked to tell ourselves it wasn't true. Actually, we were fooling ourselves. For deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. For faith in power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, uh, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. We can only clear the ground a bit. If our testimony helps sweep any prejudice, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself, then, if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. Now, this is, again, they seem very, you know, nice about it. If you're able to believe, it's fine. If not, it's fine. But again, at the beginning of this chapter, they kind of pointed out that if you're not willing to believe, you're going to die, dude. And that's just, I can't get behind that. And that was one of my biggest issues with the entire program is, is like they're just ostracizing so many people with this phrasing in the first part of this we agnostics people were already kind of struggling to get up to that point and then they get there and it's like well shit i'm not going to believe in a god just because of you telling me to like there has to be a way i can stay sober i can't 
believe in this idea that if I don't embrace these concepts that I'm just doomed for fucking all, you know, all of life and eternity. And that's kind of where I came in. Me, me and my sponsor worked through this and I was like, well, I don't believe any of this and I'm staying sober. And that's where I'm at. And that's where I hope you are too. In this book, you will read the experience of a man who thought he was an atheist. His story is so interesting that some of it should be told now. His change of heart was dramatic, convincing, and moving. This is where we find out that they don't really have a very clear concept of atheism. And again, the guys that were atheists and agnostic, you know, one of them went back out and never came back. So he drank, died drinking. And the other one, you know, he eventually came around and kind of ended up becoming faithful you know to a god of his understanding or spiritual in some way he's more agnostic i'm not sure ultimately what that means but i can tell that that might have a lot to do with how they were going about describing atheism our friend was a minister's son he attended church school where he became rebellious is what he thought an overdose of religious education for years thereafter, he was dogged by trouble and frustration, business failure, insanity, fatal illness, suicide. These calamities in his immediate family embittered and depressed him. Post-war disillusionment, ever more serious alcoholism, impending mental and physical collapse brought him to the point of self-destruction. One night, when confined in a hospital, he was approached by an alcoholic who had known a spiritual experience. Our friend's gorge rose as he bitterly cried out, If there is God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. But later, alone in his room, he asked himself this question. Is it possible that all the religious people I have known are wrong? While pondering the answer, he felt as though he lived in hell. Then, like a thunderbolt, a great thought came. It crowded out all else. Who are you to say there is no God? This man recounts that he tumbled out of his bed and onto his knees. In a few seconds, he was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God. It poured over and through him with the certainty and majesty of a great tide at flood. The barriers he had built through the years were swept away. He stood in the presence of infinite power and love. He had stepped from bridge to shore. For the first time, he lived in conscious companionship with his creator. Thus was our, was our friend's cornerstone fixed in place. No letter of vicissitude has shaken it. His alcoholic problem was taken away that very night. Years ago, it disappeared. Save for a few brief, brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned. And as such times, a great revolution has risen up in him. Seemingly, he could not drink even if he would. God had restored his sanity. Yeah, so I had a similar experience myself. I just woke up without the desire to drink anymore. I had the strong desire to never drink again and to stay sober. But the desire to drink was lifted. Of course people will say that's God. But what this book is doing and, and doing unintentionally is while it's not only potentially harming atheists and agnostics who are true atheists and agnostics. It's harming people that are believers, that don't have this white light, massive God experience, and therefore think that their sobriety isn't valid. They're not there yet. They haven't hit that bottom. God didn't strike them like a thunderbolt and knock them out of bed. So, they must not be ready. What is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. Circumstances made him willing to believe. He humbly offered himself to his maker. Then he knew. Even so has God restored us all to our right minds. To this man, the revelation was sudden. Some of us grow and do more slowly. But he has come to all who have honestly sought him. When we draw near to him, he discloses himself to us. So, yeah, okay. Basically, overall, uh, you know, if we choose to remain godless heathens, then God's never going to invade our life. And it just so happens that if you follow the principles of this program without a God you get the same results. So knowing that, the best course of action for me is to continue to do what's been working for me, to be open to the idea that while it doesn't work for me, that other versions of this work for other people, 
and that, you know, when this was written in like 1930 something, that maybe they didn't have a clear conception of what atheism and agnosticism really was. Again, we find out that Bill W. kind of comes around to that and kind of learns that he's got it all wrong the whole time. Not that he comes around to the fact that he's an atheist, but comes around to the fact that he misunderstood us. Up until that point, I hope there's people that are still around after having read that. I hope I was able to make that a little bit more digestible. If not, if you're still struggling, if you're like, this program just isn't for me, reach out to me. I'm not going to try to convince you to stay in AA, but I have some resources. Maybe there's another program that's just a better fit for you. I know all my AA brethren are like, what the fuck, man? But that's just the cold hard facts. This isn't the only school on the block that can teach folks how to not drink. It's just a version of one that's been around a while and has some history, and so that's the one I choose. But some of the folks that are in my recovery group use Dharma Recovery. Some of them have used Smart Recovery and just like meetings and you know, interacting with people. Smart recovery doesn't really have a lot of that. It'll facilitate a lot of fellowship. It's also easier to participate in AA because you don't have to like take some online classes or something like you do with like LifeRing. But that doesn't mean that those other classes and those other groups aren't valid. Smart is more like CBT and people really identify with that. Sometimes that's all it takes for folks. So, you know, if after all this, you're like, AA is just not for me, man. Don't feel like you're destined to drink. This isn't it. This isn't the last stop. There's a lot of other stops. There's a lot of other ways of, of quitting drinking. So don't give up. Don't quit quitting. Reach out. Again, an atheist reads the big book of AA at Facebook. You can reach me out at my Gmail at an one atheist in AA at gmail.com. One atheist in on Twitter. You know, hit me up. We can talk about this. There's other options. And I'm going to get into that later on. I just, like I said, I'm going to start with the big book. We'll get into the 12 by 12. I'll get some guests on here. We'll talk about other recovery programs, but this is it for now. Um, I think I've talked enough. I reached the end of the chapter. This is already a longer episode than usual. And I think I got my fill of rambling. So I hope somebody got at least some benefit of this. I did. I always get something from all of the the podcasts that I put out. So if anybody listens, I really appreciate you keeping me sober one more day. Until next time.